Hello, and welcome to the Betsy Boss Podcast. Welcome back. It is two days before Thanksgiving, and we are getting really excited to dig into that turkey and gravy and stuffing. But before we do, we obviously have to dive into this really (laughs) weird set of conspiracy theories surrounding the Astroworld tragedy. Yes. And for those of you who don't know, at Astroworld, Astroworld was this big festival that was put on by Travis Scott, who is Kylie Jenner's baby daddy. Yes. Now about to be two times over. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Another one on the way. And Travis Scott had this huge music festival called Astroworld. And because it's a, there's a lot of elements that went into things, but because of basically stampeding fans, people pushing forward with such force, the force crushed and killed. I think it's up to 12 people now. Is it really? Wow. I didn't know it had an increase to that. Okay. I think it's between eight and 12 was the last. I, I had heard. I knew eight. Yeah. Eight was originally, but maybe yeah. I'm thinking of the injured folks as well. But I mean, these people yeah. just have devastating injuries. And some of these kids are like as young as 10 years old. Right. And right. which is also really sad. Oh. And of course, I mean, you wonder how much the performers can see on stage because they're up there. They don't really know. But people are starting to really blame Travis for this tragedy because of a couple different elements. So first of all, Travis does foster this sense of wild and craziness. He loves his fans to get out of control. He loves his fans to rush the stage. I think he might have even been encouraging the fans to rush the stage when Mm -hmm. part of this incident happened. And he just, he generally espouses this feeling of like sort of raging and, you know, getting out of line, getting excited. And it almost feels like the kind of environment where people would go home with like bruises, scrapes, cuts, and would brag about it and say, okay, I got Mm -hmm. this from the Travis show. I was raging with the group and like this hard. This is how hard we were raging there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's clear that this kind of environment was sort of put on by him and it's not surprising that this happened. So that's one, Mm -hmm. one factor. The second factor is the security was just not souped up oh my nearly God. to the extent no. that it should have been. No. I think they like were below, I think, you know, standard of care for this group. I think I'm not surprised. I saw the video of them opening the gates to just get into the venue and some of the security guards were like blessing themselves before, which is terrifying. Like that is absolutely terrifying because they, they were afraid they were going to get trampled because these people are going nuts at like literally clawing at the gate to get in. Right. And that wasn't even once they were in, like these people were just clamoring to get into the show. Right. And that's not to say what even happened once they were in there. My gosh. So it's this really scary environment. You didn't have enough security. Then you get to the idea that people say, how much could he really have done? Well, honestly, as the performer in that situation, you're really the only one who's wielding the power. You're the only one with a visual of everything. You're the only one with a voice. So he really is the only one who has the power to stop the show. And you might think, hey, how often do performers do that? How often can they perceive that there's something wrong in the audience? And 
it's happened. There've been all these oh my God. surfaced yep. videos of other artists who have looked out into the crowd during their shows, perceived that something was wrong. Like either someone passed out in the crowd or people were going too crazy, whatever. And they halted the show. You hear the performer right. say like, okay, wait, stop the show. Everybody take three steps back from this person and give them some air, let them out. So it does happen if the person performing is responsible, if they perceive what's going on, and if they have enough care to say something and stop the show. Now, Travis didn't do that. No. It sounds like he did end the show early, but I don't right. know if it's because he had an idea of what was going on or if he just knew that things were getting kind of rowdy in yeah. the crowd. A lot hinges on that. And if he knew that people were actually dying in the crowd, which – I, I would like to know. Yeah, I, I would really like to know because I don't know if you're going to get into the next thing too on this. Well, people came up on stage and were kind of or up to like the rafters. And yes, stuff and were sort to of like saying, the like film and mic guys or whatever. I saw those videos. Yeah. yeah. And that is like, I mean, those people sort of have control over the sort of voice box of the show. And well, I, I'm just assuming they have something in a headset or something at the very least where, you know, they have the capability to radio or whatever. Somebody over that headset being like, hey, this is going on. Pass this up the chain to, you know, higher security so it gets the right people so we can stop. Like, yeah, well, and that's the crazy thing, too, is people were being crowd surfed out of their dead bodies and apparently it's not right. uncommon for people to pass out at a Travis show and get crowd surfed out of the, out of the crowd, out of the mosh oh pit God. and taken to safety. Yeah. You don't get medevaced out of the event. You get crowd surfed out of the event there. The one other thing too, that like really makes me kind of, mm, I don't know what was going on was the fact that he apparently went to the after party at Dave and Buster's still with Drake yes, I after forgot the about event. That. Yeah. And claimed that, or somebody claimed from his you know, staff or whatever that he wasn't aware of the events. But like, if you're seeing ambulances and whatever else coming into your crowds during the performance, like you'd think you'd at least ask questions or being the, the, um, creator or what do I want to say? Like the lead of this, he wasn't just performing there. He was, this was his event. Right. Like, there were other performers, but this is, he's, he's the, the lead, the, the head, whatever you want to say, you would think that, he would want to know and that people would want to tell him before he goes out to Dave and Buster's after eight people just died. Yeah, that's embarrassing. It's not a good look. And no, what's also not a great look is that the um, I think Kim Kardashian said something. She made some sort of statement. I don't think um, oh, Kylie, his baby mama, said mm -hmm. anything. And I'm not surprised. Yeah. And I just, I just don't think it's a good look. Like, I think people are looking to her. She was no. at the show. She was in the corner. Right. She had her baby with her. She had security, obviously, and they got out of there. But, you know, they were there. They witnessed, obviously, ambulances going around. And right. you just think that you, you say something, you offer some kind of relief, even though exactly. it's not your fault. Like, as somebody who was there, you'd think your heart would go out to these people and that you would want to do right. something to help. Exactly. And everybody knows her connection to Travis Scott. So it's not even like, oh, she was a random famous person that was there. Like even more so, she's really tied to this event through her connection to him. So it's a bad look just to remain, remain silent after eight people have died or however many now. Exactly. Yeah. It makes them both look bad. So 
um, with all this craziness surrounding this event and all these deaths, there have been crazy conspiracy theories that have come out about this show and how it like revolved mm-hmm. around satanic rituals and whatnot. Yeah. So the the main thing that I saw first was we've seen these entrances that he has for this event. I saw for even for his daughter's couple birthdays, I think, has had the same thing. It's like these big blow up heads of them. Um, so it's it's his head and it's like a, you know, like a big bouncy house inflatable, essentially, that you walk through to the entrance to the event and you walk through his mouth, which is essentially, so pretty much picture it. I'm sure everybody has seen it by now, but you know, as if you're opening your mouth and people are walking down his throat essentially to get to the event. And apparently there's this really well-known famous painting of um, the depths of hell. And it apparently like takes that iconography like straight from it and does look very similar with people walking in or out. I forget in the actual painting down the person's throat pretty much just like this so people you know at first are thinking like first sign this is some satanic ritual and the whole goal was to kill eight people for some reason so people are looking to you know obviously find things that corroborate you know what they're saying one of them is that there were eight flames apparently on the stage that only went off during his performance and the eight lives lost people started getting really deep into it there was something to do with numerology and like the date that he have announced astro world and this event lined up with some i don't know if it was alistair crowley or some yeah. some type of demonic date or something like that and there's just a bunch of thoughts that you know it's some big ritual that's being performed in front of everybody well sometimes the truth is even stranger than the uh conspiracy and in this case i mean i feel like even if there's no foul play here or anything intentionally Mm -hmm. malicious about this it's clear that like this just should never have happened there's there were so many reasons why this shouldn't have happened. There were so many safeguards that should have been put in place. Oh my God. And they do these safeguards at different festivals because they know that shit like this does tend to happen and you just can't be safe enough. I mean, usually they're just, there's so many protections against this stuff. They will not let you walk in there with a cigarette, with mints, like they are so so safe generally so to hear that all this was allowed to happen it's just like what the heck like who dropped the ball here multiple people had to for this to be the unsafe nightmare that it became yeah and crowd crush like that and those pile-ups are just so terrifying like that just scares me so much if that were to ever happen can't get out just like get stuck because yeah, something like you can't control it. You know, you could, you're just stuck in the crowd or pile ups and door frames and stuff. Like, oh, God, it's so scary when you just have thousands of people like that, um, just all in a rush to get somewhere. And it's even scarier when you have a performer who's yeah. instigating the crowd and, you know, encouraging them to right. rush the stage and come, you know, join him and all that. Right. It's just, I don't know. It's really, really sick. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, um, I don't even know the word. It's, it's just poorly planned and 
just in bad taste, I feel like. Yeah, terrible. So hopefully he finds a way to help these families and make amends for this because obviously he can't replace the people who died, but he's got to find a way to do something. I think think he's paying for the funerals at least as of now, but yeah, I, I don't I know. Think Kylie's I got more too. money than God. She should give them, you know? That's what I'm thinking, too. Like, you are a literal billionaire. Can you really not afford to just... And I wonder if she or her team is concerned that if she puts money forward, then it's going to seem like she's complicit somehow or something. Right, but right. I just, I feel like it's such a bad look to do nothing that it's just, it's worth it right. to, to do something. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I guess we'll see. Well, anyway, speaking of conspiracy theories, <laughs> we've got a big one and yes. it's a favorite from the 90s, a big 90s icon. We love her. We grew up with her. And in so many ways, I just I personally identify with her so much and her story. And mm-hmm. I could just see how she got tangled up in this situation she is just caught in a weak moment in her life and somebody who was conniving took advantage completely which is all too common in Hollywood we heard it once with Britney Spears and now today we are talking about Britney Murphy that's right the other Britney the other Britney and Britney obviously was best known for her roles in Clueless Girl Interrupted an Eight Mile And she was a really talented actress. I mean, she, I think people kind of thought of her as like a teeny bopper type and, you know, kind of in sillier roles and stuff. But when you look back at her, at her filmography, you just, you realize how many big deal films she was in and how great she was in them. I mean, they really like, they were showing a lot of different clips in this recent documentary about her death and she just she's really mesmerizing and interesting to watch yeah she had she had depth and she had just natural skills I think yeah and it was crazy I don't know if you got the impression but so they showed a lot of clips of her as a child and they just basically emphasized the fact that she wanted to be an actress since pretty much birth I mean yeah she was into it she was in every single play every single like community theater opportunity she was desperate to get into the spotlight and what was crazy too is they had this clip of her at like Coney Island or something yeah oh my she, god like got picked up on a random interview like some TV crew mm-hmm. was like going around interviewing the kids and she just like whipped away the microphone starts she was like so good talking like she's a professional announcer she looked like one of these kids who was on like all that or the Amanda show or whatever right. drinking Josh and she just like took the mic away like almost with like like an ADHD type force where <laughs> right, she was just right. so eager to like to get out the microphone and say as much as she could say and <laughs> yeah, be on yeah. ta- on camera and I don't it was really interesting cuz you get the mm-hmm. you get the idea that a lot of these children these child stars get put up to it by their parents by yeah. their moms and this just was not the case it was so clear that this no woman like from the time she was a child really wanted to do this yeah and I will say from that clip in particular I just thought it was so funny because she I didn't realize before this that she was from I mean she was from different places but I feel like Jersey was kind of 
you know, her, her hub, her hometown, whatever. And it was just so funny to hear the accent and to just be like, she's such a Jersey girl. It was just really funny. Yes. Yeah. It's so true. I didn't think of her that way at all. But then as soon no. as like they started showing those clips, I was like, Oh, of course she's from Jersey. Like, how did we not right. recognize this in her? It's so yep, obvious. Yep. Yeah. I, it was really funny. And I will say the one movie, I don't know why, but that I always think of her in is, um, uptown girl was that it yeah I don't know why that's the one I always think of her me too because so. da- Dakota Fanning oh my god and she was really <laughs> yeah. really good in that and she was starting to get really scary thin and so that was just like yeah crazy to watch but you like almost also couldn't look away like what is going on with this girl like she is just mm-hmm. wasting away to nothing but like she was so compelling on the screen and such a great actress yeah yeah so I guess getting into just a little bit about her early early life so we actually did just pass her 40 what would have been her 44th birthday on November 10th which is crazy to think but she was born on November 10th 1977 in Atlanta and her parents were Sharon Murphy and Angelo Bertolotti although her parents did divorce when she was only two and her father really didn't seem to have any involvement in her life um I don't even know if he really came around until after her death it seems like uh that he kind of came into the media and the forefront at this point they moved to Edison New Jersey kind of like we were saying good old Jersey and she ended up being raised by her single mother Sharon and it was really the two of them that I think got emphasized a lot throughout this documentary that it was like Sharon and Brittany you know for the whole thing it was the two of them against the world So she was obviously, like we said, very talented. She ended up going to a performing arts school, dance and theater in New Jersey. And what we saw was that she kind of outgrew the scene in New Jersey, New York. Like she was so talented that she ended up going with her mom uh, to Los Angeles because, you know, she was the big fish in the small pond and she needed that bigger uh, experience, bigger opportunities. And her big breakthrough really came out there in 1995 as the classic Clueless as Ty Frazier. Rolling with the homies, of course. (laughs) Yes. But she was still a kid at this time. And what was really odd is um, they were talking about how most of the kids went to school on set. Like they had tutors and everything like that. Right. But Brittany, for whatever reason, they said that she was emancipated. They referred to her as being emancipated from her parents. And because of that, Mm -hmm. she didn't have to go to school. Now, to me, that seems like like wrong somehow, it, like illegal. It still seemed weird. Yeah. Like I wonder if they yeah, purposefully and, emancipated her so that she would be exempt from going to school and could just focus all her energy on acting or if something else was at play there. It, it still just seems weird though, because especially in LA and like we're in the nineties, it's not like we're back in like the sixties or seventies where child, you know, child acting laws and regulations weren't really in place. Like I, I think they're even stricter when you're, you know, acting on set and stuff. You can't just be like, oh, I'm emancipated. I'm not 18, but I'm not going right. to go to school. Like, right. Because she didn't go to school and because she didn't have a traditional schooling or time with other people her age, she really just didn't ever figure out right and wrong. Who are the people who are going to take advantage of you? Who are the good people who have your back? She was kind of lost in that regard and 
really was set up for failure in terms of her personal life and interpersonal skills and folks taking advantage of her. So that was really kind of the the seed getting planted of her ultimate demise. So she did end up after Clueless kind of going through a full makeover. She changed her hair from brown to blonde. She lost a ton of weight. And she never really was the traditional Hollywood beauty. I mean, she was, you know, a beautiful girl. And, you know, we all know her as being a beautiful girl. Right. But, you know, you see these baby pictures and these pictures of her as a kid. And you definitely don't see, like, you know, Shirley Temple type. She was much more of, like, a Sarah Jessica Parker. Had serious chops. But because she wasn't traditionally beautiful in the Hollywood sense... She had to force herself into that mold by losing a ton of weight, dyeing her hair, making all these changes. Yeah. And I think what's really sad is that even though she did all that to try to conform to that like standard, I feel like she hit Hollywood at one of the worst times for public ridicule and the media just tearing people like her apart. Like no matter what she did, she was too thin and you know, was always going to be the ugly duckling, like, and media outlets were just ruthless with, you know, printing stuff, calling her, you know, all these awful names. There was, um, I guess we'll get into it. She dated Ashton Kutcher at one point and he was interviewed and I think it was Howard Stern was just trying to of course. bait him though about like how ugly she was. And if you, w- if you were watching Clueless, did you think you'd ever end up with her? Like, the ugly chick yeah yeah he handled it really well though I was impressed because his answer was like well you know in those type of movies it's always the the pretty girl that they make look ugly like he handled it really well I thought but he really did yeah he was like oh yeah you know they always they slap some glasses on the pretty girl and they call her ugly but she's never really ugly to begin with kind of thing which was a great way to handle it. It was very, you know, mature, whatever. Howard would not really let it go and kept badgering him, which is what Howard Stern does. But it was just, it was really mean. Mm -hmm. And could tell that Ashton was kind of backed into a corner on it because he's trying not to offend Howard. He's trying to defend his girlfriend, but he's also trying to save himself the embarrassment because, you know, somebody's calling my girlfriend ugly and I'm the hottest guy, the it boy in Hollywood. So probably doesn't sit super well. So no, not a great position to be in. Through the early 2000s, this is really when Britney kind of hit her stride. We had Girl Interrupted in 1999, which have you ever seen that? I've never seen it. It is so creepy. It's such a messed up movie and book. And it's basically all about this psych ward, pretty much Mm -hmm. like loony bin for young women. And all these different women, they have every kind of weird affliction, mental affliction in the book. And Britney's affliction is which resonates with me oh god I want to know <laughs> uh-huh and I can't remember exactly like like the exact manifestation of it but I, I think it had something to do with like binge eating and purging and oh, okay. being really secretive around food and so I just remember like the hallmark scene is when somebody comes into Brittany's room and like the room stinks, like her room on the psych mm, ward. And they're like, okay. what is going on here? Like, this is just insane. It smells so bad. And it's like the smells getting worse day by day until it's like there's flies in the room. There's all this stuff going oh, on. You, they're like, what the hell? They pull back. I think the bed linens 
and under her bed are like 30 chicken carcasses like eaten but like all just like hidden under the bed like disgustingly like un unclean and oh my god she just she played that role so well because it was such a like repulsive role and she did play like a Mm -hmm. looney tune but she is an adorable person and an adorable actress so right you know you're balancing that like weirdness and creepiness with her just being very endearing and you want to know more about her character and more about what's going on yeah so she she did a great job in that Oh my God, that's crazy. I had no idea. Like the little clip they showed was, I think her with Angelina Jolie saying something and her getting very emotional. And, you know, she definitely, like like we said, you know, had the range and everything, but that's a crazy scene. Um, after that, these are kind of, like we mentioned in the beginning, some of her highlights here, 2002, Eight Mile, which is so funny that it's renowned as this, like, you know, such a memorable movie but you know I guess it is I I, I've seen that one I have seen that one and I'm honestly I'm surprised that Eminem like engaged with her and she was cool like to be in that movie yeah he was okay with it and he must have I'm sure he had creative license because it was his life story so you know for him to hire her and decide that she was it really speaks volumes because again she was kind of this like pop star type right starring in these like teeny bopper type movies to some extent and I I don't know he must have really been blown away by her performance in Girl Interrupted and maybe even Clueless who knows about a bit of of fan yeah I know it could have been like his his previous crush there from Clueless (laughs) right guilty pleasure but yeah I mean but she did a great job in that as well and down the path of dating Ashton breaking up with him and he Mm -hmm. said something to the effect of I have never in my life met somebody who wanted to get married so badly as Brittany. Yeah. And she's still like young there. And, you know, it just, yeah, it's really sad too, especially if people can see it that clearly, you know, that's, I don't know, getting into dangerous waters. If your main objective is like, you're just out there hunting for a spouse, no matter what. It's tough. So after she broke up with him, she got engaged two different times. Obviously, both of those ended as of 2006. And this was sort of the beginning of her path to meeting her last husband, Simon. Yes, yes. I don't know if he'll be our super villain in this. Yeah, this was definitely the downslide meeting Simon. And it was kind of a um, a perfect storm of a terrible time to meet a terrible person. She was, her career was kind of on the downslide. Um, Her personal life, it was obviously not in a great place. She had just broken off her second engagement or actually, I don't know if she broke it off for the other person, but it's another, you know, second failed engagement. And there was also the rumor of drugs swirling around. So like we said, you know, the, the press was all over this and we saw this kind of rumor of drugs and question of what's going on with the 2003 Independent Spirit Awards. And, oh my God, the secondhand embarrassment I got from watching this clip was awful. Painful. Yes, it was terrible. So she is a presenter and she's up there, I think, trying to list the full list of nominees that are up for this award. But the way she reads it, is kind of like this person won 
I guess is the best best way to explain it. And it just caused a ton of confusion. It was awful. And a lot of anger. I mean, they they flashed to America Ferrera in the crowd. Yes. And she is just furious because it like you said, instead of reading the winner, the actual winner, Brittany starts reading the list again, the list of nominees. So America yeah. thinks she won. So you see her like the yeah. look of recognition in the crowd and her being like, Oh, I won. Like that's amazing, whatever. And then you hear Brittany like continue to go back to the list again and it's like what the hell's wrong with you and you just sort of see how angry everybody in the crowd is and Brittany's kind of giggling and like really out of it and it's just a really hard moment yeah yeah like that does make me wonder you know what it almost reminds me of in a way is um when Anna Nicole Smith presented that I forget what it was but when she got up there up there on stage after like her comeback and it was just like Ooh, something's not right in this situation. Like something's off. Yeah. Like you are drunk or high or both. And it is painful Mm -hmm. to watch. Like you're just, you're honestly just holding your breath and wondering like, oh my God, what is she going to do? Because this is the train's off the rails at this point. So this kind of though is the area sets the stage for like where Brittany is when she meets Simon Monjack. In 2006, again, after her second broken up engagement, she met him in L.A. and their relationship moved super quickly. Um, This guy, Simon, just kind of came on the scene from nowhere. Like nobody really knew him. He kind of latched on to Britney. And then it was like, who who is this? Why is he, you know, why is she so infatuated with him? So he's described as this Svengali kind of guy. He's a British screenwriter and aspiring filmmaker who, as they say in the documentary, turned out to be a little more than a con man. And it's so sad because he just painted himself to be, first of all, he made himself out to be the ultimate victim, right? but he also made himself out to be the ultimate hero. So Mm -hmm. he would go on about all the acclaim he's gotten as a filmmaker all the films that he's made that have just been so revered and appreciated by all the charts. And there was really nothing behind it. Like these films, there was one person on there commenting on how Simon kind of gave him the runaround and said all this great stuff. And, Oh, I've been appreciated by this tabloid and this reviewer and this, that the third and the man watched it himself and the film was a piece of trash right, and right. like unwatchable. Yeah. And he was just like, what? And the way that Simon sort of wined and dined him, he had no clue that it was all a farce. Right. Because he was so good at lying. Very believable. That he just, he could totally sell it and make it, make it seem real. Mm-hmm. So along with that ultimate hero, ultimate, you know, businessman, whatever filmmaker, He also lied about his kind of victim position in society. So he claimed to a bunch of different people that he had a rare form of cancer. Right. And that he was receiving treatments (laughs) from shark fin antidotes. Yeah, I don't understand it. Yeah. (laughs) So he like went through all this and he's peddled this story up and down the river Mm -hmm. and to all these different people and has used it to gain favor with women to gain favor with other business people to get people to marry him 
And it just, none of it was true. It's crazy. So he's a slime ball. He's a bad guy. And unfortunately he was just this really, really good liar. And he could warm his way white right in to be with Brittany because he had this way of glomming on to young, powerful, wealthy stars right? and just taking them for everything they had. So Brittany was, it sounds like just the next in a line of different women that he did this to. Yeah, unfortunately. And, you know, because of looking back, like what Ashton Kutcher said, she was very much wanting to get married. I'm sure Simon, you know, saying, oh, yes, I do too. Um, It was just the perfect situation for them to kind of rush and get married. And her friends were very concerned. They all thought it was too soon. But surprisingly, her mother was like all for it, which is another interesting relationship we're going to get into in in this too, because Brittany, Simon, and her mother all are pretty important characters in this whole story. Yes. Yeah. It was almost like a love triangle. Yeah. Obviously discuss that further, especially revolving around Brittany's death, but- Simon pretty much moved in on the two of them. Yeah. And Brittany and her mom, like we said, you know, they had their own thing going on. They were buds from the beginning because it was always just the two of them. They kind of had a Gilmore girl thing happening. Oh, and, I hate that um, show. Unpopular opinion. I but hate it I hate too. It. Uh, yeah. I've always hated it. <laughs> I think we're the only two people on earth. Though. Yeah, probably. <laughs> right. But regardless, you get the point. There's a young mm-hmm. mom who's really close with the, the young daughter and right. their best friends. But anyway, you know, he sort of moved in on the two of them. He moved into their house with them, lived with the two of them together. Yeah. And you know, because the father, Brittany's father, was out of the picture from the time she was really young, Simon was able to just move right in, become the man of the house. And, you know, now he's this almost father figure, right. kind of like a husband figure to the mom right. in a weird he, he's way. He's just the head of the household, which is just a weird, yeah, like he he is the man of the house to both of them in a weird way. Made no sense. But no. and rightfully so, Brittany's friends start to freak out about this. They're like, what is the deal? Like, why has this guy come in and taken over? Because he literally took over as her manager. He became her lawyer. He became her only contact, the only way to get in touch with her. Mm-hmm. He took her phone. He yeah. became just the only way to get to Brittany was to get to Simon. Yeah, it almost became like a cult type of thing because it was like they were just hunkering down in this house and it was the three of them. And if anybody wanted to get in touch with Brittany, they couldn't. They had to go through Simon, absolutely anybody. And I think they talked about it later on in the documentary, you know, even going to movies she was cast in or or whatever, like Simon was there and was going to be the one doing her makeup. And on every break, she was going and going to the car with Simon. And it was just a very clear, not healthy, you know, controlling relationship. Yeah. And it's such textbook abuser, abusey relationship here distancing her from everybody she knew from her support system from her friends from all other contact except for him so that she was completely and totally dependent on him for everything he became her makeup artist like you said her lawyer her contact her manager and i mean they were just the makeup thing is particularly funny but also that was so weird because they show this particular scene where he had done her makeup and you know the makeup artist who was hired was like 
uh this is insane like he, yeah. he doesn't know how to do makeup not only do, is he bad at it but he like painted her in clown makeup it was they awful. showed it and her lips were like overdrawn like she looked like a duck like a clown yeah. and it was just like what the hell and these poor filmmakers had no choice but to go with it to some right. extent because simon was the only way to get to britney and if you pissed off simon then you would lose britney too yeah yeah and so you know for the first beginning of their relationship it seemed like it was really the friends that were somewhat aware maybe not fully aware because she was so hunkered down but then the story got broken to the press and you have to take things with a grain of salt in this documentary because it is a bunch of people you know in hollywood and getting their moment to tell their story um, but there was this filmmaker named Allison Burnett, and he was connected to the industry. And um, I think he might have been the one actually that had that dinner that we were talking about where Simon was talking about his Ferrari collection or just and the cartil the the shark fin cartilage treatment and just all this crazy stuff. Um, so he realized what a con man um, that simon was but he realized you know like we were saying there was no way to connect with britney and warn her he couldn't get in touch through email through her cell phone anything uh he he tried to you know reach out to her manager to warn her and he learned that britney actually fired her manager or probably simon fired her manager when um her manager had tried to tell her that simon was dangerous so he says in this documentary that he felt out of options like he was out of options to warn Brittany so this is where I'm like okay so oh you're out of options so you call the National Enquirer tip line okay right but he didn't want the money thanks a lot great idea he just wanted to warn her that Simon was dangerous (laughs) that's one way to do it right like call the freaking gossip column and get them to write up a story about it. So they'll just embarrass you. And- um, but the story was obviously picked up and then everybody's favorite <laughs> gossip blogger. I don't even know what you call him at the time. Perez Hilton picked it up a week later. And Allison says, <laughs> it's so funny. It's like, oh, okay. It's in Perez. Perez uh, it's in Perez's hands now. It'll be taken care of. The story's out there. He knew he had done his job. So like, okay. But it's actually, I mean, I thought this movie was a really interesting commentary on Perez as well. Very much he so. he seemed very, like, remorseful. tail between the legs. Yeah, super remorseful for all of the gossip he had written about Britney and about other celebrities. And, I mean, he really, he was the, I don't even know what to call him because there is... I don't think any form of this now today. Right. But Perez was like a trashy magazine blogger. No, like, okay. So eventually, you know, the story gets picked up. Simon's a slime ball. We start to get the idea and Brittany's friends are like, okay, enough is enough. They hold an intervention for Brittany about the relationship this has got to be the first time there's been an intervention held for a relationship rather than a substance. So I was going to say though, I think we could have thought of some friends or, you know, could think of a couple situations where a friend intervention would have been needed in the situation. Big time. And I wish we had the balls to do it back then. (laughs) Yeah. But But clearly as we'll see, doesn't, doesn't pay to be those people. Exactly. (laughs) 
except it probably just further alienated the friends. Yeah. And I'm sure Simon just used it as fuel to tell Brittany oh, not to absolutely. associate with those friends anymore. Like, absolutely. Oh, I could, yeah, I could hear it practically. So, but I, I, I was um, impressed though, that they, it wasn't just like, oh, we don't think he's a good guy. Like they went in they got documentation and showed, you know, that he had issues with the law, that he had outstayed his visa, which none of this, he, had, he hadn't disclosed any of this to Brittany. And finding that out alone for me, I would, that would scare me to death. Like, who is this person I'm married to? Yeah, that would really give me pause. But unfortunately, Brittany and her mom still believed Simon and sided with him and- because of that, the intervention was a failure. So, you know, of course, Simon was then free to become even more controlling. He completely took charge of Britney's career. He took charge of her financials. He started buying crazy jewelry, properties, investments with her money. He -hmm. drove her to work, like you said, in the car and was waiting for her. And every time there was a break, she'd be out in the car with him waiting to go back on. It was really scary. And Britney's career really suffered for that because she started getting these really crappy opportunities. The movie quality just went from bad to worse. And again, I mean, she started off being in these impressive movies that were really good quality films, showcased her incredible acting skills. But she went from that to being cast in like, screamo movies yeah like like, independent you know student not student films but like practically you know the next step up pretty much yeah so she it went all the way up to her last film which was also a horror film and it was filmed in puerto rico yeah and by this point she is ghastly thin like just incredibly Mm -hmm. thin simon is at an all-time high in terms of his losing control and making things really hard for Brittany to to function and to work properly so she ends up getting completely just like fired from the set because Simon slapped somebody having to do with the film (laughs) ridiculous crazy and yeah it was in Puerto Rico that she got sick with flu-like symptoms flew back to LA and this is two weeks before she died she was treating with over-the-counter medications and that's where we have her just very feeble weak thin and sick frankly and Simon was obviously just not caring for her in the no and we'll see later that hospitalization would have at least given her a chance to survive this you know once they kind of diagnosed what her death was caused by. Um, But once she's back in LA, you know, these two weeks just before her death, she's suffering from a painful menstruation for the second time that month, which obviously, even if you're, even if it's just a normal, you know, period you're getting for a second time that month, you're going to be losing a lot more blood than you normally would. And, um, you know, this caused severe anemia. So this I think is like the main source of kind of what caused her issues and allowed these other symptoms and illnesses to kind of take over and shut down her body. So um, she was also taking a lot of prescribed drugs. So when they do get the autopsy back um, and the coroner's report and everything, the toxicology report, 
I think um, there was nothing that was an illegal drug per se, but she had a lot of prescription drugs in her system. So she was taking the antidepressant drug Prozac. Uh, they say in the documentary anti-seizure drug clonopin, which it is for, like that's what it originally was for, but it also is another um, medication used for anxiety. She was also taking the anti-inflammatory drug. Yeah, a beta blocker, hydrocodone, acetaminophen, Vicoprofen, I guess, um, for relief from period pain. And she also, like, you can see how all these things are, you know, working together in a bad way. She also had a habit of staying up with Simon. He would apparently keep her up late. So she was not getting enough rest. And obviously with everything else, her immune system is dropping. So of course, you know, all these factors are coming together. She's just ghastly unhealthy, ghastly thin, and Simon is just feeding the fire here. I mean, he is doing the least to make her a healthier person. So she apparently, the morning of her death at 3 a.m., she wakes up panicking, gasping for air as her lips are turning blue. So scary because she was so severely anemic. Oh my and God. So she eventually did get herself to the bathroom at 7 30. Four and a half hours later. She closes the door. <laughs> now that I'm just yeah, looking at that, like, that's like, whoa. And it's like, who, like, why didn't somebody help her? Like, and if she mm-hmm. woke up in a panic, like, if somebody knew this, what, like, where, like, you heard her panicking and struggling, but you didn't do anything or take her to the hospital? And you'd presume, Simon, you know, what we learned about the bed later, like you'd presume that he was in the bed next to her at 3 a.m. when she wakes up like this. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Ugh. Yep. So she's found 30 minutes later at around 8 a.m. And her mom, you know, opens up the bathroom door, finds her unconscious on the floor and carries her into the shower, I guess, thinking, Ugh. let's put the water on her to revive her. This seems so awful to think about though, like just like her lifeless body and they're like carrying her into the shower and turning on the water. Like, oh, that's so nasty. And yes, they spray her down with cold water. Obviously that doesn't do anything. And the whole production delays CPR and they don't think to call 911 for whatever reason until, you know, obviously they try this bringing her back with cold water thing. And then they end up getting her to the medical center in Los Angeles really late at like 10 a.m yeah so this is like three hours after she probably passed if we think about it yeah and if she's waking up at if she's waking up at three with this panic that caused her to wake from her sleep like that probably was the beginning of the episode that would eventually be her downfall so you think about that that's like seven hours of just well, I guess four and a half when, you know, she's found passed out or eight, but still what's going on then that takes so long to finally get her to the medical center at 10 a.m. Exactly. Like, come on. Of course they do perform an autopsy on her and the cause of death ends up being marked down as pneumonia with contributory factors of iron deficiency and anemia. And the um, coroner, I guess, indicated that the resistance, um, her resistance was very much lowered by her anemia. So the pneumonia was really easy to take over. Like it just came right in because there were no defenses and it was able to really just take her down. And her red blood cell count at the point of her death 
was at a quarter of the normal amount. So so her hemoglobin, which is responsible for carrying oxygen in the blood, was at a three. And the normal is a 12 to 15.5. So even the low yeah. end of that range is four times the amount of hemoglobin that Brittany was carrying right. in her bloodstream, which is really sad. I mean, that just goes to show how severely anemic she was and how vulnerable she was to this pneumonia that eventually ended up taking her life. So if that carries oxygen in your blood and she's waking up and like gasping for air, does that correlate or not? Oh, totally. Yeah. I think totally. Okay. Her whole body was just like starved for oxygen at this point. And you know, the reaction on her part was to wake her up literally gasping for air because she was like drowning in her own body. Okay. They didn't find any evidence of alcohol or drug abuse. Um, It was all prescription medication. Now, granted, just because they were prescriptions doesn't mean that she wasn't abusing them or taking them too much. We've all seen the pharmacist. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We've all seen the pharmacist. We all know how sometimes (laughs) these prescription drugs are a slippery slope. You start off with aches and pains and you end up with a full-blown addiction to, you know, something crazy. So- you know, there was no illicit drug use, but there were a right. ton of prescriptions, which we'll talk about in one second here. So yeah, basically the coroner ended up saying that the anemia alone would have been fatal without pneumonia. And once you added in that pneumonia, it was clearly going to be fatal for Brittany. So she just, again, her natural bodily defenses were just so down at this point because of the anemia. She had no way to fend off even a small infection. The other messed up thing is the coroner indicated that if she had gotten to the hospital earlier, she really would have had a chance to survive. But because yeah. nobody took her. And again, like she woke up at three in the morning. She was in shock. Somebody knew this information, but didn't know enough to take her to the hospital. They saw her lips turn blue, but I guess that wasn't enough to realize that she was severely oxygen deprived. So they really could have given her a much better chance if they had gotten her over there then instead of waiting until 10. Yeah. And it is surprising too, because um, you see a couple people like Simon's mother, who she talked with right before her death. And I forget who it was. A couple other people commented that you know, right in those last two weeks or week or whatever it was before her death that she was talking about just like not being able to breathe or like, I mean, this is a daily occurrence for me, but like going upstairs and not being able to catch her breath at the top type of thing. But, um, you know, she even said, I think to Simon's mother at one point, like, do you think I'm going to die? Like, am I going to die? And, um, you know, she said, no, you're not going to die. You know, obviously hindsight is twenty twenty, but it's just kind of the whole situation of it, them being so isolated too. It's like, who's the responsibility on who's she around pretty much 24 seven. And, you know, who are the people that should have kind of stepped up and um, gotten her to the hospital? I think though, they said she would have needed like a full blood transfusion to be able to survive this, to get her, her numbers and her levels back up, which is crazy. That was the case, which is so scary. I mean, her body was basically just like an empty shell at this point. And it was just so severely starved, you know, oxygen deprived, anemic. 
it really would have been hard to get her back, but I, I think she would have had right. a chance if they had gotten her in there quicker. Yeah. But speaking Ugh. of the drug abuse and the alcohol abuse, we mentioned that she wasn't necessarily an abuser of illicit drugs or alcohol, but there was evidence of some foul play in the house. Yeah. Yeah. This is kind of crazy. Um, And this always makes me wonder, this is kind of like a Michael Jackson scenario too, where it's like, do you just have your own pharmacist or doctor or like what's going on? Um, So when they took, when the authorities took a look at the house, they found 90 prescription pill bottles on Simon's side of the bed. And they all had different names along with his. And then they also looked at, you know, Brittany's prescriptions. She also had a ton and she had the name Lola Manilo was on some of her prescriptions too. And obviously the authorities are thinking, you know, this is probably a pseudonym that she's using. And a lot of times these aliases are used when you're going to a doctor, you're taking your prescriptions to a pharmacist. And it's like, why is this doctor prescribing you all of these things? So you use the uh, different name, which I don't know, maybe just being me and being weird, thinking about the logistics of things. Like she's probably not going to the pharmacist and picking these up herself anyway. She's probably sending her um, personal assistant or Simon sending her personal assistant or whatever. Like how do these people get away with that even? That's what I even wonder. Like, oh, I'm just dropping off this prescription for a random Lola Manilo. I don't know. It just, maybe it's easier because it's not Brittany Murphy, you know, like, picking it up, but it, it just, the logistics of getting their hands on all these prescriptions always baffles me. That's um, so true. So, Ugh, and that's so sad because it, it just seems like it's so much easier to play the system than it really should be. And it gets these drugs yeah. to the, hands of the wrong people. And they're, I'm sure by the time you figure it out, you're just, it's a slippery slope and you are already addicted and dependent on these drugs and right. you know how to get them so you can just keep getting more and more and bigger doses and all that so it's really sad that they were they were doing it this is. well um so i think it's safe to say that this story is too big for just one episode so we are going to leave all of you in suspense if you didn't watch the documentary and we're going to take <laughs> right. next week to discuss all of the different conspiracy theories surrounding this case. And we just, uh, there are a ton of different ones. It's amazing how the public seized on all of this information. It didn't sit right with them. They all thought that Simon was up to some bad stuff. Some thought more nefarious things than others. We'll get into that, but we're going to leave that for next week and leave you all wondering make your own conclusions. We'd be really interested to hear your perspective. So if you have perspective to provide or you have something that you think contributed to the death of Brittany Murphy, hit us up on our Instagram. We would love to hear your take and we'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of Betsy Boss Podcast. If you'd like to find us online, we're on Facebook at Betsy Boss Podcast, on Instagram at Betsy Boss Podcast, on Twitter at Betsy Boss Pod, and our email is Betsy Boss Podcast at gmail.com. Also, Betsy Boss is now on both iTunes and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, and comment. Thanks again for listening.